All right, so good to be with you this morning. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and go to Luke chapter 16. And while, while you're turning there, um, just a, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, we're so grateful for um, the opportunity to celebrate ministry with, with you all, uh, one year of ministry last week. And uh, just, again, so grateful for the kindness and graciousness of our church. And, um, and this morning, as you go to Luke 16, we are... Uh, coming to the close of a series on the parables called Tales of the Kingdom. And this has actually gone longer than I planned or anticipated, um, but it has been a joy week in, week in and week out uh, to be walking through these parables with you. And uh, today we'll preach Luke 16, and then the final two parables that we'll be looking at that'll kind of carry us into the Thanksgiving season and Advent season the, the final two parables that we will be looking at will be dealing with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I know that you can't help but have on your mind what's going on in the Middle East. And, uh, and here's what I'll tell you. What we will preach is the imminent return of Christ. I won't preach the inevitable return of Christ because no man knows when he'll return. And so I took that from a pastor, uh, former pastor of mine in terms of um, but what we will do is we will look at the certain hope, the blessed hope of the second coming, the promise from our Lord himself uh, that he will return. And even when we see all the chaos going on in our world and uh, we, we contemplate God's purposes of salvation in relationship um, to Israel's role in God's plan of redemption and then, of course, salvation uh, to true Israel, to all Israel, that is, those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ, as we contemplate all of that, what we can put our hope firmly in is the fact that Jesus Christ will return, and he will, be, he will bring peace because he is the Prince of Peace, he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so what a timely way for us to end or conclude in coming weeks our study in the parables than going to those parables that deal with Christ's return and the end of the age. But today, we'll be talking about the age now, the time now, our life now. And the message today is entitled, Eternal Wisdom for Earthly Wealth. Eternal Wisdom for Earthly Wealth. And stand with me as we read God's Word together. And we are specifically looking at Luke 16, beginning in verse 1. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. 
And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All of us are intrigued by stories of famous criminals and con artists. Not because we affirm criminals and approve evil, but the shock and suspense of their deviance and deception captivates us. In fact, maybe you're familiar with the movie Catch Me If You Can. It was a 2002 film that starred Leonardo DiCaprio, and it was based on the true story of Frank Abagnale, who forged and cashed $2.5 million of checks that he had received by falsely posing as a lawyer, a physician, and an airline pilot, along with others. I mean, he was a master criminal and a master con artist. In fact, it is said that he even passed the bar exam and didn't spend one minute in a classroom in law school. And so, just an example of criminal mind. I also think of the manager, Tom Parker. He was known as the Colonel. He was Elvis Presley's personal manager. And the Colonel as much as it might believe that he was for Elvis Presley, he was actually for himself, and he used his position, it is said, and to take over half of Elvis Presley's fortune. I mean, it's just a fascinating story. These two particular men, and others like them, they are reminders of the dangerous desire for wealth, and the deception of money, which we might also just call greed. And, and here's the thing. Those, those individuals that I spotlighted, uh, they, they, they illustrate what simmers in every human being. Selfish ambition, lustful greed, and the allurement of riches. We want happiness. We want security. We want safety in this life, and we are conditioned to believe that all of those things will only come to us through the world or through worldly means by which we use. Now, the reason I open up with those illustrations and, and, and that point is this, is because our Lord Jesus Christ here in Matthew chapter 16, verse 1, masterfully tells a parable in where he focuses on one such greedy kind of character, 
really a criminal of sorts. If we wouldn't call this manager a criminal, we would definitely call him a con artist. And as he does in other places throughout the Gospels, what Jesus does here is he addresses the great power and the great influence of wealth and riches, particularly our lust and greed for earthly treasure. It is a common theme in his warnings and in his instructions throughout the Gospels, and he often gives these to both unbelievers and believers. Now, the question that we might ask in the very beginning is, okay, so then what makes this parable unique? Well, if you recall, just in chapter 15, Jesus gave three parables that specifically dealt with salvation. The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and of course, the two sons who were lost. And now, as you come to chapter 16 of Luke's gospel, what Jesus does is, is he kind of pivots, and this parable is not so much for the lost unbeliever, even though it applies to the unbeliever, this parable is actually told specifically, look at verse 1, he said to his disciples... So the words here that Jesus speaks, this parable, should be readily received by the church, by people who profess Christ, who who profess that they have experienced salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so this parable, unlike the three that we've been looking at, shifts to look at the disciples. But there's a couple of other things that should strike us about this parable in the beginning. First, Jesus' central message is not about the sin of trusting wealth, but it's actually about the stewardship of whatever we possess. In other words, you don't come to this text and say, okay, so Jesus is just anti-wealth. He's just anti-having anything. He's just anti-savings and anti-any of these things that are in the world. That's not the point. The point of the text is it is about stewardship of what we have with an eternal perspective. And you've got to keep that in mind as you go through this with me. The second thing that I want you to just realize in the very beginning is that central to the parable is not the rich man. But anytime you, Jesus uses that phrase, a rich man or the rich man, you can guarantee he is teaching something important for us to hear about materialism and earthly wealth. The man that he focuses on is not the rich owner, but it's the hired manager. And this man is specifically described as dishonest, And he is described as shrewd. We'll talk about what shrewd means in a minute, but we might say prudent or wise or skillful or sly or clever might be even a better word. And so you you have to keep that in the forefront as we go through this because dishonesty is sinful, shrewdness is not. And so perhaps the most shocking thing in this parable to the audience, specifically to the disciples or to any Jewish person that would have been listening, is that this manager is complimented by his owner. Our Lord masterfully draws divine principle from this man's flawed character that should gain the attention of every committed 
disciple. In other words, what do we learn from the drive of a lost person, an unbeliever? What do we learn from that drive that we should apply to our faithfulness to Jesus? And so the key theme here that you're going to see as we walk through this is this. Use your stewardship, I would say. Use your earthly wealth and resources for Christ and his eternal kingdom. Maybe a better way to say it would be use your stewardship of earthly wealth and resources for God's eternal kingdom. Because I don't care where you place yourself on the spectrum of have or have not, it doesn't really matter. Whatever we have, whatever state we find ourselves in, no matter what our possessions might be, we are to use whatever it is that the Lord has given to us, not just money, but everything in our earthly existence, we are to steward those things in such a way that we advance the gospel of Christ and his eternal kingdom. That's what Jesus is driving at. And the way that we're going to see this key kingdom truth is in two headings. The first thing that we're going to consider is the, the tale of the manager. We just need to walk through it and get a really good character profile of this shrewd manager. The second thing that I, we're going to look at is, is the truth about money. I really would say the truth about mammon, but we don't use the word mammon anymore unless you have a King James with you. And so, but the word mammon actually encompasses more than money. It means wealth or riches or everything that our life might consist of. That's what that word is referring to. And so let's consider then the tale of the manager and then the truth about money, which is Jesus' application of the parable or his extended application. First, the tale of the manager. I want you to notice first, the thing that we see in verse 1 through 3, is that this manager, he deals with an unintended problem. That's the first thing you're going to notice. So let's read it together again. There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. He called him and said to him, what is it this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, that as he contemplated in his mind, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig and I am, not ashamed, and I am ashamed to beg. And so as we think about these three verses, let's consider how he deals with this unintended problem. The rich man that is, that is introduced to us in the very beginning, he's the one that owns this vast estate. He has incredible wealth. And its management was so complex that he had to hire a manager or a steward to oversee all the affairs and assets of the estate. And so while the manager was skilled and competent, and in fact he had enough skill and enough competence that the rich man hires him, um, what you'll see is, is that he lacks integrity. How do we know that? Well, notice charges are brought against him by the owner. And what are the charges? You have been wasting my possessions. You have been wasting everything that I have entrusted to you to manage. Similar language is used in Luke 15 about the younger son. Remember, he went out and he took the inheritance, all the money that he got from his father's inheritance. And what does it say? He wasted it on, on, on foolish living, 
on reckless living. Well, the rich owner is rightfully angry. He says, what is this that I hear about you? What is this report that has been brought to me? And so what he does is, is he commands the man to turn over the accounting records. Now, in order for this manager to hand over the books, he probably or clearly had to do a lot of finalizing and finishing of his job. And so all the books would need to be handed over for the next manager. Why? Because he's fired. This guy is terminated. He's cut off. But there would still be, there, there still is a little time for him to finish up his responsibilities, right? It's like when somebody is given their two-week notice. What that means is a person, if you are given a two-week notice, that pretty much means you are maybe kindly fired or you're being let go and you have two weeks to wrap up all loose ends and exit the company. Well, that's what's happened here. So he finds himself in a problem that he did not intend. But here's what I want you to notice about this guy. He doesn't panic. Instead, he ponders the magnitude of his problem. And notice what he determines. Number one, he's too weak to dig. He cannot dig. In other words, he's not skilled or perhaps he's unable to do manual physical labor. He's an accountant. He keeps books. He sits at a desk, right? So he's not accustomed to, nor is he trained to do work that would be manual or physical. It would be quite a change for him. But the second thing that we're told is, is he says to himself, and I will not beg. I, I will not beg. I mean, look, look at the verse. He says, he says, the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master's taking the management? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. In other words, that is below me. Isn't it kind of ironic? It's below him to beg, but it is not below him to deceive and to, and to be dishonest, all right? Even the greatest of criminals perhaps has a little bit of common grace integrity, I guess. And so he's too proud to beg for money or provision. Now here's where I want you to pause for just a second. Do you feel bad for this guy? The answer is no. Okay? Now remember, Jesus always has an intent in how he tells these parables. So he's drawing everybody in. So the disciples are sitting there and are listening like, I don't feel bad for this guy. I mean, I'm glad he's being let go. He's been dishonest. He has, he is distrusted. He has broken the trust of, of the owner. And so this man is responsible for his situation. But that leads us to something, another thing that we need to notice. Not only does he have to deal with an unintended problem, he devises an, un, an underhanded plan. Look at verse 4. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Now, again, remember, his termination is announced. It's not yet actual. It's not going to be official. Some time will pass. And so when the text says, I have decided what to do, this is the light bulb going off in the head. What he's saying is, I got it. I know what I'm going to do. So again, he's not panicking. He's plotting. He is plotting. He is devising a plan that will secure his earthly future. And so in the time that remains, notice what he decides to do. 
He says, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. In other words, what he decides he's going to do is he's going to meet with his master's debtors and his master's clients one by one. And so that's what he does. Look at verse 6. In verse 5, so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly. Notice the urgency, because the clock is ticking. So he's got to execute his plan. And he says, just write 50. Well, then he says to another, how much do you owe? And he says, a hundred measures of wheat. And he says to him, take your bill, I'll write, and just write 80. Now, what does he do here? What he does is, is he offers each of the debtors a large discount. Now, here's what's interesting. Technically, he's allowed to do this. Now, track with me. He's allowed to do this. Morally, this is completely inappropriate. But technically, he's allowed to do it. I mean, morally, it is, it is just reprehensible that he would do this. But technically, legally, he's okay. And so here's what he does. The first owed 100 measures of oil. What does he do? He cuts it in half. You just pay me half of that. Just write your check, just write your bill for half of it. And then the second owes 100 measures of wheat. And so he only charges him for 80. He gives him a 20% discount. Now you say, what exactly does he do here, pastor? Here's what he does. The steward relieves each of these the interest and has them basically write a bill or check for just the principal. See why? Because that way, technically, the master will get the principal. That is, whatever he put into it, he'll get that back. But what he has done is forgiven, and he's allowed to do this technically, though not really, because he's only got two weeks left. So he, he gives them the discount. He relieves them of the interest. What does this do? This means that each of these debtors will be, they will owe him later. In other words, they will be, they will need to do him a favor at some future point. And so what he does is, is he relieves him of the interest, has them write the bill or check just for the principal, he escapes legal consequence and places himself in their debt, which was what his plot intended to do. Go back to verse four. In verse 4, it says, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people will invite me back and say, man, remember that favor you did me? How can I help you? Now, do you see how clever this is, we might say? It's a clever move on his part. And so the deceit and the deviance would have been incredible to the audience. However, what the man does is he scams the rich man's clients, and at the same time, he secures his own future. A modern-day equivalent of this would be, remember Bernie Madoff who invent, and, and the whole, that whole scheme that took place some years back? He invented stock trades and brokerage accounts only to pocket all the investment money. It is said that Madoff ended up putting in his pocket $19 billion. $19 billion. And then after he did this for 17 years, he was caught, charged, and sentenced to 150 years in prison. So, so that would be a modern-day equivalent of this. 
And so what we see here is, is that he has, not only does he, is he dealt an unintended problem, he devises this, under, un, this underhanded plan which leads to what shocks the listener. He draws unexpected praise. Look at the text, verse 8. The master does what? Remember, Jesus is always trying to shock with this. The master commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now pay attention. The master commended the dishonored, honest manager for his shrewdness. Shrewdness means his skillful insight. His ability to not panic, but look to the future and, dis- and devise a plan that would benefit him. His self-centered innovation. And it is here that much concern about this text is often focused. Some, in the past, some would say, well, clearly the manager is dishonest, sinful, and evil. And so what is the Lord doing here? Is he encouraging dishonesty? The answer is no. And the the text actually answers it in verse 8. In verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for what reason? For his dishonesty? No, for his shrewdness. And I said in the beginning, shrewdness is not a sin. The rich man was commending the manager's mastermind, not his morality. This man, this manager used his business skill, his financial knowledge, and the remaining time that was quickly disappearing to not only make friends for himself, but to indebt them to himself so that he would have something once his job was over. And what happens here is is that the last part of verse 8 is where Jesus is going with this. Notice verse 8, look at the last part. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now, the last part of verse eight summarizes really everything that we've, lo- we've, we've considered. So, the sons of this world, you know what he means by that, right? The unbelieving, the lost. What Jesus is saying here is, is that lost sinners, the unbelieving, are more shrewd, more clever, more passionate, in pursuing their worldly goals and securing their temporary futures than the sons of light are about eternal things. And so it must be noted here, before before we explain that is, do you see what Jesus does? He divides the whole world into two types of people. You're either a son of the world or you are a son of light. But there's only two. There are unbelievers and there are believers. There are the righteous who've been made righteous through Christ, and there are the wicked who live according to their desires and live in their sin. And so you you so so the question that is invoked immediately is is which one are you? Which which we'll 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 draw to here in just a minute. But but the word son of light is used often in the scriptures to describe the believer. How does a person become a son of light by believing? And this he gave them the power to become the children of God. Those who believe on his name. The believer, the one who repents of sin, 
who sees his or her sinfulness and sees that Jesus Christ is the Savior who came into the world to save the lost. The Son of Light is the person whose faith rests in Jesus Christ for salvation and they have been changed or transformed. The Son of the World is the unbeliever. No repentance, no thought of eternity, nothing. And so let me drill down on this. Let me drill down on this. Jesus is saying that unbelievers exercise greater skill, more energy, better insight for the future, and careful planning for the future for their worldly goals and temporary comforts than believers do. I mean, that's piercing, isn't it? In other words, those outside, and here's the shocker of that, those outside of Christ have nothing to live for than this world. Nothing to look forward to beyond their earthly lives. And yet notice how people who are unbelieving, they are consumed and they are committed to securing comfort and retirement for a future that they are not guaranteed and a future and a life that, may, that will not last. Now, you, you really need to hang in, to, in here and pay attention to that. The world is consumed and committed to securing comfort and, re, and, and retirement for a future that they are not guaranteed and will not last. It's part of the whole American dream retirement culture. We are, we are conditioned to believe that the whole point of our entire existence is to build up for a retirement that we don't even know that we'll get to. How many people do you know that they live their whole life just making sure that they, they build up that nest egg and the minute they retired, within three months, they died of cancer or they dropped over with a heart attack? I mean, the, the, what Jesus is illustrating here is the, the, really the short-sightedness of the world, yet their shrewdness in how they prepare for it. This is the great deception of the American dream. Hear me, security and safety are both idols and illusions. They're idols and they're illusions. Folks, the truth is life is short. Time is fleeting. Death is coming. Judgment is sure. And the question for the sons of light and the sons of the world is this. What are you living for? What are you living for? What are you consumed with? What occupies the, the, the very essence of all of your pursuit and energy? Now you think about that's the unbeliever. The unbeliever is not looking towards eternity. And think about the sons of light. The sons of light are bound for heaven. Believer, hear me today. We are bound for heaven. We are, we are, if we, and imagine if we exercise the same energy, effort, and excitement in knowing Christ, cultivating godliness, evangelizing the lost, loving the church. If we invested as much energy, effort, and excitement in those things as lost people do over worldly things, imagine the transformation. Believer, Jesus is saying to us that we need to be smart and we need to be shrewd in redeeming the time that remains and laying up treasures in heaven. J.C. Ryle, the 19th century pastor and theologian, 
He says this about this verse, and I want you to consider it. The diligence of worldly men about the things of time should put to shame the coldness of professing Christians about the things of eternity. Jesus is telling this to kind of shock his disciples, to stir them, to look at the coldness of their heart, to to look at the complacency within them, and in doing so, to compare that to the world and ask themselves, what am I doing? John Calvin said this of of this parable. He writes, Jesus reproves our spineless laziness that we do not have the same eye to the future that heathen men have to feathering their nests in this world. I mean, folks, listen, I I read that, and it's the mirror of God's word on me. How much energy, how much investment do I make feathering nests for this life rather than storing up treasure in heaven? And so again, what this then boils down to is this kingdom question. Are you a son of light or a son of the world? That's where you got to start. And if you're a son of light, what you're saying is, yes, Lord, you're stirring me. You're waking me up. You, you, are, you are shining the light on this area where I, I put so much investment and so much energy on things that ultimately don't matter. Now, I'll balance that out in just a second. But I just want us to pause there for just a moment. And if you're a person who would be an unbeliever, you've never put your faith in Christ, what are you living for? Are you looking beyond the grave? Are you preparing for judgment? Are are you investing your life in things that will eternally matter? Or the older you get, the only thing you have to look to is backward, not forward. I've said this so many times to my family. Is it the Christian? Is always forward looking. We look backwards with gratitude, but we look forward with hope and anticipation. That's the believer. The believer is always forward looking. I don't have time to sit in nostalgia and look backward because we're always marching forward. There's always something to be doing, to be thinking, to be engaged with that has to do with the kingdom of God. And so Jesus draws this real quick conclusion in verse 8 when he says, again, look at it, the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And that dealing with their own generation is how they live, how they interact. And that leads us then to the second thing, his extended application, the truth about money. The truth about money. So what he does then is, is he then goes on in verse 9, and he basically just makes three applications of the parable. He extends his point to show us what the disciple should look like. This is what should characterize the believer. Three things. First, look at verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Not a very long, complicated sentence. But here's what Jesus is simply saying. Use your money, use your time, your abilities, your resources 
to advance my kingdom. That phrase, make friends, I mean, that's a view of what ministry is, of what mission is, that we are about the business of making disciples so that when we come into the eternal dwellings, when we are in the eternal kingdom, that we are there because what has happened is we have lived for that kingdom while still here on earth. And so how do we do that? We do that through the church. We do this in our home. We do this in our daily life. What are we doing? We are preparing others. We are showing others the values of the kingdom. Not perfectly because we're still sinners. But as we live as Christians, people look at our lives and they say, well, there's something different. Well, what's different? You're better than other people? No. I've been redeemed. I've been forgiven. I've been saved. I have been given a, a, a view, a vision for not only this life, but for the life to come. And so we are preparing others and ourselves for that eternal dwelling, that eternal state in the kingdom that is yet to come. Live in light of eternity, in other words. We are living in light of eternity as we make friends, as we make disciples, as we share the gospel, as we grow in the truth, as we live out our faith. We are living in line of eternity by setting our minds on things that are above, not on things of the earth. Let me just tease that out just a little bit more practically for us. Don't be consumed by worldly affairs. Don't be consumed by it. I, I, I mean, I don't care if we're talking to kids or we're talking to adults here. Don't let grades, school, family, Leisure, hobbies, work, 401k, degrees, become your all-consuming passion. Don't let that happen. You say, well, so what you're saying is none of that matters. I didn't say none of it matters. What I'm saying is, is that ultimately, ultimately, none of it will matter. But what will matter is how we were stewards of all of that. That's what matters. And so, so as, I, as, as I look back even in my own home, as I've raised kids, I have tried to instill in them a sense of what matters most, what is primary. Often it's just because you're in, you're in pastoral ministry. So, I mean, there are times that we've, I've come home and, and there's been a, 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 a young person that's taken their life. Or, or an older person that has, that has gone on in, in, in naturally and have passed on from this life into the next. And, and in all those conversations, it stirs up a sense of eternity. But the one thing that I've wanted to instill in them is that what matters most, what is, what is, what is primary, is Christ and the gospel. I am much more concerned about their salvation, their personal holiness, their spiritual growth, their commitment to church, their preparation for eternity than I am about what college they'll attend, what degrees that they'll earn, what house that they'll own, what retirement that they will save. Those things are not primary. Christ and the gospel is what is primary. Years ago, I heard a preacher say, and I'll never forget it, and I'll be honest with you, it, it, it just twisted my heart just a little bit. I heard a preacher say that it's more important to you. This is when they were like two, when my oldest were two or three. I had a preacher say, it is more important to you that you set your children's eyes on Christ than to teach them to keep their eye on the ball. And you know what that did? It just altered my perspective. 
It altered what I realized I wanted to set in front of them. It also made me change some things in my own life. I realized that there were hobbies I would not be able to enjoy. There were not things I would be able to do as a father because the primary responsibility would be to guide them in the truth. And so, and so I would rather, and I think we would all agree that we would rather know Christ and serve him than have all the success that the world may promise. Now I don't want, I know, you might say, well you're just a killjoy man. I'm not, okay? Because I have hobbies just like you have hobbies. I have interests just like you have interests. I have fun. I mean, I grew up as a fundamentalist. I still believe in the fundamentals of the faith. And I love the word fun and fundamental. So enjoyment, right? And listen, brothers and sisters, it's right to save. It is right to prepare for the future. No kid should walk in here and say, you know what, man? Grades don't matter. The pastor said so. That's not what I said. There's nothing wrong with those things. Here's what Jesus is getting at here. What he's saying is, is that the pursuits of the world, they're necessary, but they're not ultimate. They are gifts to be received, but not idols to be worshipped. And so hear me, all our riches, all of our resources, all of the things that we are given in life, they just need to be kept in proper perspective. And what Jesus does here is he kind of he jars us, doesn't he? They're to be used properly. Because Jesus says it. He says it, doesn't he? Look at the text. He says, so that when it fails, did you get that? When it fails, when the day comes and those degrees don't matter, when the day comes and all the things of this world, they ultimately don't matter, when they fail, you'll be able to enter into the joy of eternity knowing that your greatest treasure and the treasure you try to give to others is the treasure of Christ. Proverbs 27, 23. For riches do not last forever. Matthew, in, the, in Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, do not lay up treasures for yourselves on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there's where your heart is. Whatever you value most, that's what you worship. That's what Jesus is, is driving at. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all this other stuff, it will happen in its proper time, in its proper place, to be enjoyed, to be received, but not at the expense of the eternal. So, so here's the kingdom question that I have to ask myself and that we all have to ask. How do you use your wealth and resources for the kingdom of heaven? Now, for all that I said, I would also just encourage this body of believers what a joy it is to be among people who are, we're all striving to this end. None of us are striving perfectly, but we're striving to this end. That we're using what God has given us with an eternal perspective. Second application, verse 11 and 12. 10 and 11 and 12. Now notice what Jesus says. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little it is, it is also dishonest in much. 
If then you have been, been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? Underline that word, true riches. Unrighteous wealth is just the passing wealth of the world. It won't last. True riches are the eternal things. And if you have not been faithful in what is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now here, I want you to notice, the Lord uses the word faithful. That word faithful means trustworthy, dependable, responsible. And so the one who is faithful to the kingdom with the little things, the little stuff. The little stuff is the big stuff to the world. The, little, the, the, the big stuff to the world is all that stuff we just talked about that they're clamoring for and working towards and consumes them. That's little stuff, man. The, the believer, what he's saying is, you know what marks a true believer? Is that you can keep that in it. You are fighting to keep that in its proper place. You, you're not, you didn't reach the conclusion that, well, I just can't have fun anymore. I can't enjoy things anymore. I, I can't have a savings. That's not the conclusion. The, the conclusion of the believer is, is that I need to steward these things in such a way that it honors Christ, that my heart is filled with gratitude, and it serves others. And, and, then, and, and then what marks the believer is that he's faithful of the bigger stuff, the eternal things. That when you walk into that workplace, when you embrace the responsibilities of life that you've been given, you work hard and do what you do on a daily basis to the best of your ability, but you also know that you're there as a witness to Jesus Christ, and that you want to bring glory in the good you do, and you want to do it well, as Paul says in Colossians 3. What Jesus is saying here about the one who is faithful and then saying, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who's going to entrust you to the true, true riches? What he's saying is, this is the mark of a true believer. A person who now's eyes been opened and sees like, man, this world's passing. I don't want to live for all this stuff. I want to live for Christ. Listen, that person is the one that has received the true riches of salvation. It's the mark of salvation, not the means of salvation. It is the mark of salvation, the, not the means of salvation. Because if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who's going to give you that which is your own? And so as you go to the end of verse 12, what Jesus is driving at is, be good stewards of unrighteous wealth, of whatever is you're in the world. Don't be dishonest. Be honest because you have been saved by the grace of God. People consumed by those things will never receive true riches because they, are, they have anchored their life into the soil of this world, and this is all they're living for. And so the kingdom questions that, are, that we are led to, are you faithful to the kingdom of heaven? Are you faithful? Is that the high priority in your life? And are you generous for the kingdom of heaven? Has the grace of God created in you a desire to overflow with graciousness and generosity towards others and whatever that might look like? And obviously, supporting and investing in Christ's mission and purposes through his church. But have you received true riches? Have you, are you generous for the kingdom? And then the last, the last application quickly, we must love and serve God with total devotion. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Here's what he's saying. is He's saying Christ is our treasure. True disciples. They have been, he, he, Jesus has bought us in salvation, and we belong to him. He owns us. And the desire of every believer should be to love, treasure, and serve him. Because you can't serve God and the world. Our love and loyalty will not be shared. That's what Jesus is driving at for his disciples. He demands love and loyalty because he's worthy of it. And he is presenting himself as the focus of our hearts so that we will resist the temptation to love money or mammon or our lives or our stuff or our desires or our earthly pursuits more than him. In some sense, this is a warning to the disciples to examine their hearts. Paul does the same thing, 1 Timothy 6. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Notice it's not rich that is the problem. It's desire into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and and destruction. For the love of money, there it is, not money, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so the question that Jesus leads us to is this, who or what do you love and serve above everything else? Now, no one in this room is going to say, well, I I love God, and I serve him above everyone else or everything else. I think we would all say we're striving to that end. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's setting the compass to say, listen, I want you, I want to point, I want you to, to point you to what the focus of your life truly needs to be. And so in conclusion, I want us just to, let me repeat these questions. And I want, I want us to answer them honestly. Because every one of us here have to say, okay, are you living for eternity? If you're here today and you're not saved, you're probably just thinking about this life. Or you're confused about eternity. But the believer will say, yes, I'm living for eternity, but man, do I need to set my heart on things above even more. It's a mirror for us. Where is your heart? I mean, right, are you faithful and generous? Is, is your heart overflowing with the desire to steward the things that God has given you and to use it for his kingdom? Are there areas where you could do that more? I'm sure all of us would say yes. And then lastly, who is your Lord? Have you submitted yourself to the Lordship of Christ? Is he the one that is the treasure? And are there areas in your life, believer, where you need to say, Lord, I need you to take this so that you can even become more of the treasure in my heart and in my life. Some years back, when I had to make a decision, I was in my mid-20s, and the first church that I pastored had extended a call. The problem was, is that I was in a position where I had what would have been, at least what others said, you've got the best benefits, the best retirement, the best situation that someone in their 20s could ever imagine. 
And I was being called to leave that and to go and to preach the gospel and shepherd a church. I was perplexed. I mean, I was in turmoil. And then I was given this little book called Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. Pastor friend gave it to me. And he said, you know, read this book. He said, just read it. He said, you know, he said, he said, there's not necessarily a direct right and wrong in the decision you have to face. But if the Lord has called you to preach the gospel and to serve the church, I think that Mr. Piper has some things that might encourage you. I read that book, and I came to this quote in that book, and I closed it and I wept, realizing that God had brought me to this moment to leave that situation, to demonstrate that the very things that I had begun to really think were most important really weren't. Christ is most important. And here's the quote. If we look like our lives are devoted to getting and maintaining things, we will look like the world, and that will not make Christ look great. He will look like a religious side interest that may be useful for escaping hell in the end, but doesn't make much difference in how we live or what we live and love here. He will not look like an all-satisfying treasure, and that will not make others glad in God. The Lord used that little quote by Piper and the truth of passages like this to make me realize Christ is worth it. He's the treasure. I don't know what that looks like for you, but if you can leave this service and this message saying, yes, Jesus is the treasure, and I want him to be the center of everything, then you get his point. Eternal wisdom for earthly wealth. Let's stand and let's prepare to sing. Thank you for your word. And I thank you for the truth. And I pray, God, that you will do your work in our heart through the Holy Spirit. Lord, how this plays out in each of our lives will look uniquely different. But the truth is the same. God, help us to be good stewards of everything you've given to us. To, like this dishonest manager, help us to be shrewd, but in such a way that we wisely use all that is ours in the world, in such a way that we advance your kingdom, that we promote the gospel, and that we lead others to the joy of knowing Christ as Lord and Savior the joy of the promises of heaven, the joy of knowing that life has been meant to please you and not serve ourselves, and that that will overflow into every area of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.